Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, addiction, drugs, sex, and more. Does punishment work? A conversation with Kara Dansky. How could I have forgotten rock and roll? (laughs) It's not just drugs. There are many kinds of addictions. Alcohol, sex, gambling, shopping, food, and more. And there are many kinds of punishment, from humiliation to incarceration. Sex addiction, for example, is heavily punished both by social humiliation and sometimes jail. People losing jobs, imprisonment for deviant behavior, lives ruined. But let's get real. Addiction is rampant. Again, look at sex addiction. 20% of U.S. men admit to accessing porn at work. 19% of all adults regularly surf for it. 47% of Christians said pornography is a major problem in the home. 10% of adults admit to internet sexual addiction. And believe it or not, one-third of online porn viewers are women. Should we punish addicts through humiliation or prison? What does punishment accomplish anyway? A meditation instructor, Kara Dansky, has spent many years in the criminal justice system, and she's questioning the punishment of addicts. Is she naive? Or is treatment just common sense? Stay tuned and let's find out. And now, here's Beth. Hi, everybody. Well, I've really been looking forward to meeting Kara. Uh, I read a, a blog of hers and I was really touched. I felt like, you know, here's a person with a heart talking about addiction and punishment and treatment. And so we are really looking forward to talking to her. And she has a fascinating background. But first... For those of you who know, uh, we always do the news of the inner revolution. We hope there's news of the inner revolution <laughs> every week. And for those of you who don't know, the inner revolution is about a shift of consciousness into oneness, recognizing we're all one and treating, you know, like it's the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have others do unto you, and accountability, like we are accountable for the impact we have on ourselves, one another, and the earth. And mutual support, where we support the whole and the whole supports us. So that's the inner revolution in a nutshell. And what we do in the news is we either give you stories that show that there are changes moving in that direction, and we kind of like to cheer those stories, but we also just give information to inner revolutionaries who may have missed some really significant things in the news. So, James, take it away. Okay, here we are. Our first item is from Christine, our producer. This is from the Washington Post, May the 19th. India just set an all-time record high temperature, 123.8 degrees. A small city in northwest India, Folodi in Rajasthan, India, climbed to a searing 123.8 degrees Fahrenheit on Thursday afternoon and broke the country's record for all-time hottest temperature. The previous record was set in 1886. April's heat wave was the most intense ever observed in Southeast Asia. In India, it lasted for weeks. Hundreds of people have died from heat-related illness. Northern India and Nepal have been battling their worst wildfires in years. A similar period of extreme heat killed over 2,500 people last year. Is global warming real? I (laughs) kind of think so. Right. You know, you know, I'd like to say something about that. A lot of the people who d- deny global warming are sitting in air conditioning. So, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Okay, take it away, James. Okay. 
Some encouraging news from The Guardian, May the 18th. This is also from Christine, our producer. Solar power sets new British record by beating coal for a day. In a move hailed as a historic turning point by clean energy supporters, UK citizens last week enjoyed their first ever week of coal-free electricity generation. Watson said, the age of inflexible and polluting technologies is drawing to an end, and power will increasingly be provided from clean, renewable resources. In 2015, wind power alone met 42% of electricity demand in Denmark, 20% in Spain, 13% in Germany, and 11% in the UK. Also, Portugal has already just run for four days straight on renewable energy alone. As the country was powered by just wind, solar, and hydro-generated electricity from May the 7th to the 11th. In Denmark, wind power generates 140% of the country's total electricity demand, and they export the excess to other countries. Also on the climate change front, at this news flash from Todd, our assistant producer, Catherine Hayhoe, a climate activist of Texas Tech University who was on our show twice, has just won a Friend of the Planet Award for 2016 from the National Center for Science Education on May the 9th, 2016, for excelling at building connections between science and society. On another front, yes, Beth. Okay. Um, I have uh, just give, sent, sent you a note, James, that I'd like you to read. This is very interesting news, and I want to share with everybody that, uh, you know, there has been a lot of movement on climate change, and uh, a lot of people have worked extremely hard to get where we are about dealing with carbon emissions, emissions and so on. But we've been discovering that things like methane are really a problem, and the... Um, it, it it hasn't broken yet through, and I don't understand why. I don't know what it is about. I mean, I know people are afraid to look at climate change because we're all afraid that we're going to have to change our lives. But the reality is that climate change is already changing our lives. I see it where we live. The uh, animals are suffering from the heat. We have had horrible heat waves here in southern Oregon. And, uh, you know, there's typhoons. There's all of this. It's like I I am so struck by our willingness to do things politically instead of really paying attention to what's actually going on. So that people who are in the business of being our government are really not paying attention to reality because they're really looking more for how to get elected, how to get money and all of that. And it's like, this is one of those Rome is burning and here we are playing the fiddle. So uh, this is a lack of accountability and a lack of willingness to be honest with ourselves. So we need an inner revolution. So I want to tell you something that I saw on the news today, which I think is equally ridiculous as what I've just been talking about. It's that LGBT language helps sink energy bill. Now, this is wild. This is absolutely wild. There's an energy bill that Republicans actually like more than the Democrats, but because there was some uh, language in there about not being allowed to discriminate against lesbians, uh, transgenders, gays, and so on, they actually killed the bill, their own bill, because they can't allow for the reality that all human beings are created equal. Now, I know that in our day and age, 
uh, we are supposed to be following in the traditions. And we have a tradition which says all men are created equal. Now, we know that that's bogus because it isn't just that all men are created equal. It's all people are created equal. But in that concept of all people are, are created equal, I guess that gays, lesbians, you know, transgenders are just not people. Or blacks aren't people. I don't know. Or immigrants aren't people. I mean, so there's a lot of non-people in our country and in our world, I guess. So it just gets me that they... A week ago, Republicans had to hold open a floor vote and get several of their members to switch their votes in order to defeat an amendment offered by a representative, Sean Patrick Maloney of Democrat of New York, to uphold President Obama's executive order barring employment discrimination by federal contractors on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. And can you imagine they twisted arms and they got some of these Republicans to vote against it. And the same thing is happening. They killed their own energy bill in order to give themselves the power to discriminate. Isn't that wild? Yes, indeed. It certainly is. Uh, okay, I'm ready if you are. Go ahead. On another front regarding income inequality, according to The Guardian, May the 13th, South Dakota is one of the world's most valuable places for billionaires. Did you know that? <laughs> I, I, I knew about the offshore hidden assets. I had never dreamt that South Dakota would be high One up of them, there. right. Yeah. Assets held in South Dakota trusts in 2014 amounted to about $226 billion, according to the Financial Times. South Dakota trust laws allow families to shelter and hide a lot of income. Economist Chris Farrell states, corruption is bad, but what really bothers me, and particularly in the environment we're in, is that the ultra-wealthy are legally hiding their assets. And you have this army of lobbyists who are going to be opposed to any change. But if you want to restore trust in the U.S. system, everybody has to pay their fair share. Forty countries have sent representatives to a summit in London on Thursday to fight such practices. The countries, including the U.S., have signed a pledge to expose corruption wherever it is found and to end the misuse of anonymous companies to hide money. Yeah, it must be the weather in South Dakota that really attracts all that money. <laughs> I mean, or it must be the Native Americans on their reservations who are just getting rich and stashing their money in these trusts. Okay. Okay. Uh, another news item, this one from the USA Today, May the 24th. Middle class shrinks below 50% in Silicon Valley as one percenters' incomes rocket. As Silicon Valley boomed after the recession, its middle class shrunk, creating one of the widest gaps in the nation between the ultra-wealthy and everyone else. Here, fewer than 50% of households are now middle class, and half of all income gains flow to the top 1% of earners. And this is from a news report, I'm sorry, from a report uh, entitled Inequality and Economic Security in Silicon Valley by the nonprofit, nonpartisan California Budget and Policy Center. For example, in San Mateo County, the average income of the top 1% earners climbed 36% from 2009 to 2013 to $4.2 million per year, meaning that the sliver of the population took home 46% more pay than the average of the bottom 99%. So this is just an example. And this has been going on with our disappearing middle class. Income inequality is an issue nationwide. And in Silicon Valley, it's become a chasm that could affect the nation's center for tech innovation long term. 
the report cautioned. Yes, and I would just like to comment on that. Um, you know, we tend to think of technology as being the way out of uh, so many problems. Okay, clean jobs, people not going to the coal mines and all that kind of stuff. And we've been seeing some of the downside. We had uh, an interview with Whitney O'Brien a couple of weeks ago, which talking about being a black woman in Silicon Valley. And uh, we've seen the downside of tech in terms of the environment. And now we're seeing the downside of, of tech in terms of the economy. So we our little fantasy there that we are all going to go off into the digits or dot-com universe and everything is going to be okay. It it just isn't true because the structure of our society has not changed. Whether you're talking about coal or or technology, you know, if the structure of society and the economy doesn't change, well, what can I say? And that has to do with our consciousness and the way that we see the world. Uh, and the kind of expectations that we have and the ego base of most of us, you know, are we looking at the world from the perspective of what can it do for me? So thanks a lot, James, for the news today. And a lot of news has been out about addiction. I mean, you know, we're always seeing something about heroin addiction or fentanyl or whatever that stuff is, you know, uh, how to deal with that. We had a show about alcohol addiction not long ago. And it was just appalling to see what the numbers really were about alcoholism and the problems that it was uh, creating. And a lot of people who are alcoholics are in prison, right? Because they get involved in crimes. One of the fascinating things that we saw at that time talking about crime and addiction is that we saw that uh, alcohol, a lot of alcoholics end up in prison because they're part of domestic violence, um, violent crimes, and so on. Whereas with drug addiction, it seemed to be more geared towards people having, you know, trying to get money in order to buy drugs versus violence itself, which I thought was very interesting. But too many people are going to prison for addictions of all sorts. And we already started talking about sex addiction. So here comes Kara Dansky, and she wrote this lovely commentary about the social problem and just like with homelessness and mental illness how we are incarcerating people who are sick and um, I'd like you to start there Kara and tell me how you got involved in this cause sure and first of all thanks so much for having me on the show oh Um, thank you I got involved in this cause, and uh, I think it's particularly relevant to this conversation when I started my early career as a lawyer, as a public defender in Seattle. And when I became a public defender, a lot of my clients were charged with crimes related either solely to possession of drugs or to sales of small amounts of drugs. Now, when was this? Did I miss that? Oh, um, I I don't know. This was back in 2001 that I was a public defender. Okay. Um, And I saw firsthand by being in courtrooms in, I practiced in Seattle, so, so that's where I was. I saw the ways in which the criminal justice system 
treats people who are either suffering from addiction or are selling small amounts of drugs to make some money. Um, And just to be perfectly clear about this, in Seattle, like in many places across the country, the people who were being charged with these crimes were almost exclusively African-American and Latino people. Yes. And so I saw folks who were Black and Latino in Seattle just really being shuffled through the criminal justice system as though that were some form of uh, a legitimate approach to dealing with the problem of addiction. So that's when I got really interested in the issue. You know, that's so fascinating that you're putting it that way because it's like uh, we had a show on prostitution, I think it was two weeks ago. It's like, why is prostitution illegal? I mean, you may not like it, but what, why is it illegal? And, and the, the point that I'm making is that there are so many things that we make into crimes. And, we, and just because we did it yesterday that way doesn't mean it was always that way. There was a point for years in the United States, prostitution was not illegal. Then it became illegal. Drugs weren't always illegal. Then they became illegal. Um, alcohol became illegal and then it stopped being illegal but we act as though you know we we accept the way things are as though they have always been that way or they have to be that way and i think that's one of the things that you're bringing into relief here is like you're questioning something just because we've been doing this doesn't mean that it works yeah i mean just briefly on the prostitution point there's a really interesting experiment that's being conducted uh, in, uh, in uh, Scandinavian countries where they're not legalizing prostitution, but what they are doing instead is arresting the solicitors of prostitution yeah. and leaving yeah. the women alone Yeah, um, because it is almost exclusively women who are victimized by prostitution. So I just wanted to note that. I, my personal preference when it comes to a legal regime regarding prostitution is to go in that direction rather than legalize it completely because there's a lot of evidence that when prostitution is totally legalized that women are harmed. So I just wanted to just mention that briefly. But I I think your larger point, yeah, definitely. Um, We did not criminalize drug possession or drug use for a very long time, and we did. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that when the war on drugs was initiated in the 1970s, it was very much a response on the part of the Nixon administration and then and then uh, even taken further by the Reagan administration to fear about civil rights. And yes. Yeah. It was and, a war on black people. Yeah. I, and, I could, and still yes. is. And still is. And it still is. I couldn't agree with you more. Plus the whole concern about drugs as drugs, uh, the same drug in a black community has a completely different response as it has had when those drugs, those same drugs moved into the white communities. And in a way, th- there's, there's a saving grace in that because once that drug starts hitting the white community, then there is going to be a change in the whole response. But even today, there's such a disproportionate arresting of black people for the same, uh, the same crimes. Yep. 
The ACLU came out with a report several years ago on marijuana arrests and found that black people were four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people, even though we know that black and white people use marijuana at roughly the same rates. Yes. Yes. So that is really fascinating. By the way, I want to clarify something about what I'm talking about in terms of prostitution is decriminalizing it. But that doesn't mean that people who are... uh, pulling women into prostitution uh, should be given a pass. I mean, it's just the opposite. I think that really separating out or differentiating between the act of what a woman does with her own body and how she's treated in society and how uh, women are ensnared and children, how uh, they're ensnared in prostitution, the abuse, the, um, you know, the, the violence against prostitutes that they can't defend themselves because of the illegality. Those are the kind of things that we were talking about. It's like we have problems in our society. There is a lot of um, sexual addiction in our society. We are not well in that respect. And yet we have to, uh, we have to start looking at how do we heal people rather than punishing them for behavior. And when you start looking at all the addictions, you realize that there's very few of us who aren't addicted to something. <laughs> and there are consequences to every addiction. Tobacco smoking is going to you know, ruin people's lungs, and it's going to ruin the lungs of anybody within their arena. And uh, alcohol, you know, you have a, you know, hitting somebody on the road, killing somebody on the road. Uh, even overeating or eating sugar or these kind of addictive substances has an impact because they end up sick and the society has to pay for the healing of the illnesses. All of our addictions, I think, and that's why I wanted to put it as an addiction issue rather than just as a drug issue, there are consequences to society and to the individual of all these addictions. But why aren't we spending more of our energy and attention on helping people to heal from addiction? That's the question that I'm asking. Yeah, I think that I think that there are real policy questions to be addressed and real budgetary questions to be addressed. And so what I mean by that is our society made the decision and continues to make the decision uh, several decades ago that we were going to fund the criminal justice system to deal with all of these things. Yeah. That was a policy decision. That was a budgetary decision. And, you know, when I, when I talk about this, I, I often like to say, like, who decided that it was a good idea to put lawyers and judges in charge of healing people? Oh, right? And I can say uh, yeah. that as a lawyer, right? I, yeah. am a, I am not a drug addiction counselor. I'm not a sex addiction counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I am utterly unqualified. And most judges are unqualified, frankly, yeah. to be overseeing people's recovery. But, but, but nonetheless, we made the policy decision to put supervision of people who are addicted in the hands of lawyers and judges. And we made the budgetary decision to do that as well. And the, the, because those are policy decisions and because those are budgetary decisions, we could rethink them and we could have alternatives. We could have the public health system, for example, oversee addiction. Um, that's just a policy decision that we as a society need to make. 
Yes. Oh, I, I love what you're saying. And I think, you know, part of the fascinating thing about this is how many of those judges and lawyers who are prosecuting the addicts are snorting cocaine. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, or are, but I can say it, you know, or are drinking. I, I've been a counselor since 1980. And I have worked with people in all sorts of occupations and in all walks of life. And you know, I see craziness, addiction, uh, everywhere. People are stressed. People do not feel at peace and they don't feel wellness. And people are so stretched in terms of struggling to make a living, trying to get ahead, taking care of children, trying to look good, um, prove something about themselves. And in this environment, a lot of people are not at peace within themselves, that they're, they're lacking something. They either need something to calm them down or they need something to pick them up or whatever it is that's going on for them. And I just see it in all kinds of people. And so I know that there are judges and lawyers who are using drugs. I mean, because I've, you know what I mean? I'm a counselor and I'm not even blaming them. I'm saying, you know, what is it about us uh, that we are so um, anxious or disturbed or distraught or not at peace? I mean, that's not well, you know, not well. Well, that's why it's, that's one of the reasons why I founded my current business, which is called 1000 Arms. And yes. I do, I wear a lot of hats and I do a lot of work. And one of the things that I do is teach meditation to people because I yes. think that meditation can be a really important tool in all of our efforts to work on ourselves and do the inner work that we all need to do. And in particular, because of the concerns that I had when I was working in the criminal justice system, specifically around race and racism, I'm really interested in working with people who are interested in using meditation to dismantle racism. And so yes. if that's something that you'd like to talk about, I'd oh, love to absolutely. go in that direction. Absolutely. I wanted to get off the just the simple issue of incarceration versus treatment and talk about alternatives for wellness. And that's one of the fascinating things about you <laughs> is well, that you. you're doing this and, um, you know, you're trying to bring something. We all have a piece of this puzzle. You know, meditation can't solve everything, but mm -hmm. it's a piece of the puzzle. And, and out of your background that you came to that conclusion. Yes. Yeah, so I'd love for you to talk to our audience about that. Well, thank you. Yeah, as, as we've been talking, I've, I spent about 20 years doing social justice activism, most of it in the criminal justice system. And I've also been meditating for the same amount of time. And I became a certified meditation instructor about 10 years ago. And because of my work in the criminal justice system, I have been really upset about race and racism yeah. in this country for a really long time. Yeah. But one thing that I never did was to examine my role as a white person yes. in a society which is characterized by extreme racial inequality. I understood racial inequality outside of myself, but I had not done my own inner work to figure out how, as a white person in a white supremacist society, I had been socialized. Yes. And I I hadn't looked at that very carefully, and I started to 
use meditation as a tool for examining that within my own self. And through that practice, I came to a much deeper understanding of my role and the impact that I have as a white person in this society and how I am privileged and how I perpetuate racism in my day-to-day life inadvertently. None of this is intentional. It's just something that we are, that, that white people are socialized to do. And I developed a much deeper understanding about how all of this works. And I have a lot more work to do. And I will continue to do that work on myself. And I hope through 1000 Arms to offer opportunities for other white people who are interested in doing similar work to do that work with me. Now, are people coming to these programs? Yep. So I've had a few workshops and retreats, not that many so far. I'm still also consulting with criminal justice reform organizations. And one of the organizations I'm working with right now is the campaign to close Rikers Island, Mm. uh, which I know, you know, folks in California, I'm sure have heard about. But um, if they haven't lived in New York, they may not know that Rikers Island is one of the most notoriously awful jails or prisons for people who live and work in them. Anyway, so I'm working with the campaign to close Rikers Island. But Mm. the main thing that I really want to be doing and that I will be doing starting at the end of July and continuing through 2016 is hosting workshops and retreats for white people who are really interested in examining our own racial socialization. You know, that's so important because, again, things get ingrained in us and we think just because they are this way and always have been this way that this means that they always should be this way so if uh, for a very long time white people have been in a supremacist position in relation to people of color well I mean you just think about slavery (laughs) you know you don't have to go far right Uh, and that people that white people have had the right to exploit black people then they think that that just goes with the mother's milk you know you don't even see it You don't even see it. It's just like, there it is. I think that that, what you just said is really key. We don't see it. And many, I'm, I'm guessing many of your listeners, certainly many of the people in the circles that I travel in, are upset and angry about racism. But what they mean, what we mean by racism is outside of ourselves. We don't there's there's no encouragement to look at racial conditioning within ourselves. Yeah. And you know, the other thing about what you said is yes, we can we can definitely look to the European enslavement of Africans in creating this country, but we don't even need to look that far. You know, I've been looking into what my you know, people of my grandparents' generation and the racism that was perpetuated under Jim Crow. And I'm sure my ancestors participated actively in that. I mean, I don't have any specific examples, but I'm sure that they did. And we're seeing it today still with the notion of colorblindness. Many of us, I and many people of my generation, were raised to believe that we're colorblind. But colorblindness is its own form of racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's why we're calling for the inner revolution. Instead mm-hmm. of just the outer revolution. Because we are, it is our consciousness that co-creates the world in which we live. And uh, the assumptions that we make and the, and the blindness to our own behavior. And the same thing is true for men. Men don't even see the million and one ways 
that they have advantages over women. They, they just don't see it. And, and many women have been brought up to buy into that system as well. So we are trying, we have to dismantle all of that. But I also believe that while it is on some levels advantageous to be white, for example, or to be male, it's also painful. And I think that it hurts every one of us, wherever we are in that, uh, in that hierarchy, whether you're on the top or the bottom. Because, for example, when you're on top, and I, I'm, I did not mean that it's not recent. I mean, it's current. I mean, racism is current. There's no question about that. I totally agree with you. But I, I was talking about, you know, something as simple as we built an economy on the slave trade. So many of the fortunes on yep. the East Coast were built on the slave trade. And, um, uh, yeah, and racism has been so big. I mean, whether it was the Chinese and the West Coast or, every, you know, each group who gets comfortable or gets ensconced then gets to exploit the weakness of the next group that comes over, even if the next group is Italian. Yeah. And, you know, and that whole stratification of society. But it makes us sick. If we're at, whenever we're on top, we are always afraid of those beneath us because we're always afraid they're going to overthrow us. I can't even imagine what it was like to live in, under slavery and be white. And no, I mean, because people have to know on some level that everybody who was serving them wanted, hated them. <laughs> you know, right. I, I'll, I'll give you an example that doesn't even have to do with race. Uh, when I was, I went to Brazil in my younger days, I, I did so, a lot of traveling. I was a social activist in those days. And I went to Brazil and I was staying with these really lovely people who had kind of left-wing politics views. And they had a number of servants. And, of course, part of that was very difficult to live in. At least it was then. This is back 40 years ago. To live in a third-world society because you didn't have all the conveniences, modern conveniences. Everything was done by labor. So people needed to have more servants. But also it was considered to be socially responsible to hire servants because they needed the money. And they would honestly told me that they thought that their servants were very happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would sit at the dinner table and I would watch the servants. And because I spoke Portuguese at that time, not anymore, I spoke Portuguese, I was able to talk to the servants. And we had conversations and they, they took me to their homes in the slums. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I thought it was, I had lived in so many slums, especially in New York City. I lived in a lot of slums and I, I, it was bad. I mean, it was really bad, but I never lived on a slum that was built on a garbage dump. Mm-hmm. And th- this was just like one step more unfathomable. But the people who hired these people had no idea whatsoever that they, of the anger, the resentment, and the suffering of their own people that they lived so closely with. You know, there was that intimacy and yet there was no realization. But I feel in my heart that everybody who's in a hierarchical position, whether it's men over women, is going to fight like hell to keep that position because they know that they can go down. They yeah. don't want to go down to that level. They want to keep. And there, isn't a, there is no social network where everybody feels like, oh, I'm going to be taken care of. 
I mean, you don't feel you're going to be taken care of. I don't. <laughs> you yeah. know, you, so that our society is not built to care for people and you have to care for yourself. And so there is this blindness that happens to us when our survival, we think our survival is at stake. And yet we are also suffering from the anxiety of having to fight so hard to keep the stratification of society. We feel humiliated. Like if we're men, we feel humiliated if we're brought down to the level of women. There are, there's a lot of things that are going on inside of us. And I think it's unhealthy for all of us. Yeah. I, yeah. So you, you said so many things that made me think. Um, I think for me, it's, so I totally agree with you that these systems of oppression and hierarchy are damaging to every human being. And the ways in which they are damaging to people in the higher category are that it strips us of our humanity. Yes. We, we, we somehow manage to lose our empathy with our fellow human beings. Oh, and I'm afraid also think to have it. Afraid yeah. to have that empathy. Yes, please yeah. go on. Well, I just was going to say, I think, I do think it's important to name that a, a structural oppression like racism, yes, it absolutely harms white people because it strips us of our humanity, but its primary victims are not white people, right? Like its primary victims are the people and the ancestors of the people and the people who are currently being subjected to torture and murder. Um, on the basis of race, right? Like those are the, pri- yeah. and, and women are the primary victims of a system that values males over females. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of challenging dynamics at play. Oh, I totally understand what you're saying. But for example, with men, I think that men are tremendously oppressed by the oppression of women because they can't show anything in themselves that looks female. And so they grow up totally distorted as human beings. Um, so I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm just sharing another perspective on that. But what I have seen is, you know, men who are so afraid to show weakness or because they have to go out there, they have to be the providers. They're getting ulcers too. I mean, they feel this pressure on them. Um, it's, you know, racism is a little bit different from that. Because if you're white, you're not, well, unless there's something in your background, you're afraid that somebody's going to see you're black. Um, but I'm sure there's corollaries to that, too, and that need to be blinded and that need to step on other people. And the isolation that you feel in the larger world, because look at the fear that white people are having today in this country, because the uh, non-whites are, are going to be overwhelmingly the majority of the population. And what do you have to go through? to try to fight for yourself, uh, you know, because nobody is guiding us. I, I did a video called White People, Who Has Your Money? And I was trying to address in a very different way from the way you are, and, and I love what you're doing, Kara, is, uh, you know, to really look at the reality that the white workers are not doing well either. And what, we're, what white workers are losing is the ability to be allies with the immigrants, the ability to be allies with people of color who could, if we came together, we could actually do something about the society where everybody is suffering. 
So I, I see that so clearly, like these white workers, because I also worked in factories and stuff like that in my, my youth, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, we're better. But they're not better off. They were getting like $2 an hour instead of a dollar and a half. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and racism kept us apart and split. So instead of uniting against what's really troubling everybody to change the system, we were fighting each other. And my God, look at the election today, how that's being played up. Yeah, and that's certainly nothing new, you know. I mean, this this history of pitting poor white people against poor black people has been has has been a dynamic that that runs the entire course of the history of this country. You know, it was going yes. on um, during slavery, and the and the way that that functions is by feeding poor white people the idea that they are superior yeah. to poor black people. And that, I think, is how white privilege, even though there are white people who are suffering severely under our really, really uh, distraught economic times, yeah. um, white, white people still have race privilege over black people. And I do, I agree with you that race and sex function differently in the sense that Biological sex is grounded in reality, and, and women have been oppressed for thousands of years on the basis yeah. of our biological sex. And um, so so I, I might take a little bit of issue with you when you say that males are oppressed, because uh, I, I think that when it comes to sex-based oppression, that is, that is categorically not the case. I do agree with you that males are inconvenienced by sexism, but I'm oh. not sure that that's the same thing as oppression. Well, um, I'm, I'm not here to try thing, to convince you, but yeah, I, totally, I do totally, think, me, you know, it's I, okay. But, well, I was just going to say, like, to, yeah. to your point that race and sex are different, I think that I agree with you completely because biological sex is grounded in reality, bio, uh, in genetic and biological reality, whereas race was just completely made up by your... Yeah for no reason other than to justify oppression and torture and enslavement and murder. And exploitation. Um, totally, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, would, I would like to maybe say a few more things about the, the male thing because, again, having been a counselor, I have seen men, you know, I've, they are so afraid of looking weak. They feel so oppressed. Talking about economic exploitation, for example, and, you know, it's good to have a discussion, right? We very rarely hear any discussions. People either scream at each other or they agree. So <laughs> let's mm -hmm. have a discussion. Life is complicated, and I'm very happy to discuss this, this stuff with you and to hear your perspective, too, and to present some other ideas. When What I've seen, because I used to be in the Wages for Housework campaign. I was... Uh, the uh, West Coast coordinator in my social justice years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were really looking at the impact of, uh, you know, sexism and how the men got to come home and beat their wives, right? Or they got to come home and sit there and put their feet up and ask for the beer. And the woman who'd been staying home all day taking care of the kids was supposed to take care of him because she didn't have any money. So I was observing that. But I also observed, because I was also you know, a worker and in the working class movement, that the men who felt inside them that they were responsible for supporting the family were enslaved by their jobs. 
So the women were enslaved by the men, and the men got their gratification out of being better than their wives or, or looking smarter or beating them up. And yet the reality was that they became slaves of the company that hired them because the women didn't have any money. So I, I think that that paradigm, that's sort of stuck in my mind. And just like you're talking about, you know, races being turned against each other. And I, you know, I so agree basically with, you know, everything you're saying is that it's the same thing with men. You know, as long as men are fed the, the bull that they are superior, they are not going to stop playing football and going to war where they get smashed and destroyed. I mean, how great is it to be a man, right? Uh, they're not going to... Uh, align with women for women to get the kind of wages that women need to have for the men not to feel like they have to be provided for. They're caught up in their own propaganda and they are suffering because they are not being allowed to develop as full human beings. And I think that all stereotype hurts everybody because we're nobody is allowed to be truly who they are, and everybody's afraid of falling into the despised class one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with gender stereotyping. I don't know if I would use the word enslavement to describe that, because I think that, you know, because of our country's history of literal enslavement of African people, I'm not sure it's an equivalent. So I don't know that I would use that word there. But yeah, I think that I think that gender stereotypes are a huge problem. I guess I just don't think that gender stereotypes oppress men at all. I think that they inconvenience really? men. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't think that's I think that. True. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I just don't think it's fair to say that uh, that that males are oppressed, right? Because because what would that mean, right? Like females are oppressed vis-a-vis males because mm-hmm. that's the class, sure. you know, the, the sex, that's sex the class-based structure, yeah. right. So if males are also oppressed and females are also oppressed, then that means nobody's oppressed. No, and no, I don't no, think that's that true. means that, ev- that pretty much everybody is oppressed. I have seen w- women who are in the upper classes and they have got to kowtow to their husbands. You know, they're busy shaving their arms and their legs and waxing their whatever uh, because they're so desperate to keep that man who's keeping them in the money, right? So these women are for a higher class, but they have their own form of oppression. I, maybe it's a definition of the word oppressed. And so it, it really isn't about whether we use the word enslaved or oppressed or whatever. Uh, you know, having worked with men, I have seen them beaten to the ground, beaten to the ground, trying to pretend that they have it together, doing jobs that no human being should have to do, you yeah, know, trying to tough it out. class-based right? oppression. Yeah, that's true. I mean, class-based oppression is a real thing, and that's another yeah. piece of intersectionality. But that does not mean that males as a class are oppressed. Well, James, what do you have to say? It's so interesting because we're going to have a radio show about this next time. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I would like to share that uh, oppression comes from within for me and that uh, I have over and over and over tried to prove uh, that I was more than I was or I could do more than I could do. I was a former attorney and I suffered a lot of defeats in the courtroom. 
as well as a few victories now and then. But uh, I felt the pressure to support uh, uh, the woman who depended upon me for the income. Uh, and so my oppression came from uh, taking all those uh, blows, shall we say, of being out there trying to prove uh, I lived up to some sort of male uh, uh, stereotype. And so that was what was oppressing me. And uh, it's been very healthy for me in recent years to get away from that as much as I can. I'm, I'm in a men's group called the Inrevolutionary Men. Some of us are going to be on the show next week. And uh, it's, we're trying to redefine what it is to be a man and re change how we behave and how we think and feel and to embrace uh, all those aspects that we've pushed away from that we've characterized as feminine and uh, try to be more in the oneness with all people in all aspects of our psyches. Yeah, but it's so great that you're doing yeah. that. And I, I guess I would just say that that the the pain that you experienced in the legal profession, which with which I can relate, um, yeah. I, 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 um, the economic system that kept women out of white women because black women have been working for a very long time but an economic system that kept middle and upper class white women shut out of jobs yeah. and continues to to a lesser extent but till but still um that 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 troubles me um uh, to me, that is class-based oppression, and it's it's very difficult when I when I look around the world and I see that the overwhelming majority of leadership positions, whether you're talking about government, education, religion, academia, business, all of the major institutions, the overwhelming majority of leadership positions are held by men. Oh, like that's yeah. just factually true. Absolutely. And that's not an accident. No, no, I don't disagree with that at all. But I also see the other side, which is like, you know, the father who takes his kid and here's a little boy and teaches him boxing and punches him in the head and tells him to be tough. That happens all the time. You know, we yep. had a, there was a story that we uh, got on the news, uh, oh, months ago, about how, I think it was in West Point, they forced these men to go into the boxing rings, and when they got concussions, they yeah. forced them to go back. That's, that's oppression of men to live up to a certain standard of what it is to be a man. It is eviscerates men's souls. To have to be those kinds of people. And I've seen that too. There is a lot of pain in that. And it's, it alienates people from themselves. I think that, you know, you talked about lack of empathy. And um, it, it's true. But we also often have lack of empathy for ourselves. Because we're so busy trying to meet some standard. I, the story about high heels. We didn't get into the story about high heels today. But there was a petition by women to, um, in the UK to stop the, for businesses from compelling women to wear high heels. High heel shoes are one of my biggest pet peeves. Why should women have to walk on stilts to have a job or to look sexy, to ruin their backs, to ruin their health? It's just appalling. It's yeah. absolutely appalling. 
But it's equal to me. It's appalling the way we treat each other and we divide each other against each other, and nobody is well. You know, because if if men were doing that well, they wouldn't be drinking, and they wouldn't be smoking dope, and they wouldn't be doing the things they did. They are doing, and they wouldn't be sex addicts. Something is definitely wrong with the way we all are being treated, and I cannot believe that our time is up. Oh my God. Mm. So we're having this battle here. But uh, I love the fact that we're talking about this. And um, let's come back in a minute. But James, tell us what we're doing next time. Well, this is a really nice segue to next week's topic. Real men aren't real. Let's talk about how some guys who are reclaiming their souls. For most men, being male is a prison for the soul. As babies, boys cry and get comforted. But at some point, crying, touching, and seeking comfort is no longer allowed. The fear of looking like a girl becomes dominant. The world expects boys to transition from real humans to machines who are no longer supposed to flinch. They're expected to be tough, to be providers and protectors, girding their loins to go into the mines, factories, corporations, boxing rings, the courtroom, and wars. If they don't, they are humiliated, and they're supposed to know all the answers, too. By this time, they don't even know who they are because socialization has forced them to bury their natures. In this episode, we interview three guys from Interrevolutionary Men. They'll be sharing their experiences as well as their struggle to become themselves, discover men who are gathering to help one another, and young boys to throw off their bondage. Gay, straight, trans, you are all invited. And women are invited to listen too. And now for a final word. Yes, you know, giving somebody a bone like you get to oppress women in exchange for everything you give up. (laughs) You know, we have fallen for this crap too long. So before we go, Kara, you must give out your website so people who are interested in the work that you're doing can get in touch with you. Well, thank you. I would love to work with any white people. Um, and, and, And I should also just say, like, this is not intended to exclude global majority people or people of color. It's intended really to support white people who want to examine our own racial conditioning, um, who want to look at our own racial conditioning, our own racial socialization, and the relationship between our own racial socialization and systemic racism. So it's about white people who really are committed to working on anti-racism work and who want to incorporate meditation as a tool for doing that. And you can find me at 1000arms, all spelled out, dot net. And you can also email me at Kara, K-A-R-A, at 1000arms, all spelled out, dot net. Well, Kara, I think it's just fabulous that you have taken your skills, your gifts, and you've given them so freely to help others who have not been in the kind of positions you've been in to help the mentally ill, the homeless, the, you know, the, the addicted to help in all these social justice movements and to take on racism. And I couldn't, you know, we've been talking about uh, details, but fundamentally, of course, we agree that racism, sexism is, a, is an illness in our society. And it's wonderful that you have been so generous with your gifts to try to help to change our world. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you for saying that. Well, you're very, very welcome, and I hope you enjoyed being on here. (laughs) We enjoyed having you. Great. Okay. Until next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.